In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Those words sound familiar. We confess them every week in the Nicene Creed. This is what Christians believe. We await right now the final coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will return to bring about final judgment and confirm his everlasting kingdom. This is taught in the Bible. It's taught in Revelation 20, a section we didn't read, verses 11 through 15. But the question is, what is the church supposed to be doing until then? What can we expect to happen before then? This morning, I want us to consider the church's millennial mission. But first, we need to ask, what is the millennium? This time period that we just read about in Revelation chapter 20. This is the question we've all been waiting for, right? <laughs> we've been in this series on Revelation, in and out of it for quite some time now. And I know many of you are wondering, what is he going to say about the millennium? Because I've heard all sorts of weird and crazy things about the millennium, what it is. Maybe you're curious. For many questions, uh, for many Christians, when we think about the end times, this is the question that a lot of people gravitate towards. What do, you, what do we do with the millennium? Well, we need to step back once again, as we've done so many times, and get the big picture of what's happening in Revelation. What is this book all about? Well, the very first verse of Revelation tells us, it's really a thesis statement for the whole book, it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ, as John tells us, to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Revelation 1, verse 1. Now, we've seen this. Revelation applies to the church in all times, in all places, absolutely. But Revelation does have a historic context in the first century. And what's happening in Revelation is that we're getting a heavenly perspective on events that are unfolding in the first century. However instructive those events might be for us in the 21st century, behind all of this apocalyptic language, this charged symbolism, it's referring to events that are happening to the church in the first century. So going all the way back to Revelation 4 and 5, John is taken up to heaven. There's an empty throne. There's this question of who is going to take up this scroll. And John sees the Lamb come into heaven. This is the ascension of Jesus Christ that John witnesses from the backstage, as it were. And he continues to witness the progress and the unfolding events of the church from the backstage. So what happens after the ascension of Jesus? Well, Pentecost. Pentecost happens. The Spirit comes on the church. The church begins to go out into the world. And John sees, from heaven's perspective, what this looks like. Because very quickly, Christians, those following Jesus, face persecution and opposition from the Jewish leaders and establishment first. And very quickly, martyrs are created and the church is pushed out further and further into the world. John is seeing all this from behind the scenes. The opposition to the church. The opposition to the church is the work of an unholy trinity. There's the dragon. There's the sea beast. There's the land beast. And Satan conscripts the land beast who we've said in this study, this is referring to that Jewish establishment that rejected Jesus in the church. 
Satan constricts the land beast and the sea beast, the beast that comes up out of the water. This is Rome. They collaborate together in persecuting the church. But the blood of the martyrs, it is spilled throughout Revelation, is crying out for vindication. And they are vindicated. This is what we looked at last week. As Jerusalem is judged, as the temple is judged, that place that was supposed to represent God's blessing for the nation turned inward and actually started being the place and the symbol, the persecution of the church. So there's this announcement that Babylon, which we said is Jerusalem, will fall. And of course, we know from outside of Scripture That's exactly what happened. In A.D. 70, Jerusalem is destroyed. The Romans, who had colluded with the Jewish establishment, the Romans now turned on them. And they become an agent of God's judgment. They destroyed the temple. And this was very much the end of the world for the Jews of that first century. What do you do without a temple? It was the end of the Old Covenant era. And Jesus predicts all of this is going to happen. We read about that in our gospel lesson in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. He foretells the destruction of the temple. And he says, before that happens, there's going to be great tribulation. And it's going to happen quick, like lightning coming from the east. As far as from the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, when we think about the coming of the Son of Man... We confess in the Nicene Creed that Jesus will finally come. What we often think of as a second coming. But there are many comings of Jesus. Jesus comes in judgment. Jesus comes and meets with us every week. In the Word and at the table. And here in AD 70, we have a coming of the Son of Man in judgment on that old covenant era. The Son of Man comes on clouds. Judgment comes and falls in Jerusalem. But then messengers are sent out to the four corners of the earth. This is what we also read about in Revelation 19, 11 through 21, our first lesson. He takes out the beast, the Lord does, and the false prophet. The way is clear now. Judgment has happened. And now we come to chapter 20 in the millennium. In Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. This is the angel of Jesus. The angel of Jesus comes and kicks off this millennium period. Satan is bound. What has Satan been up to? Satan has been uniting the nations against the bride of Christ. But no more will this happen. Satan will no longer be able to deceive the nations in this particular way. Satan, it's interesting, has been on a journey in Revelation. He's kicked out of the heavenly spaces. He's cast down to earth. And now he is going to be imprisoned in the abyss. Satan will not be able to extinguish the flame of the church. He's cast down. But as Satan is cast down, the saints are raised up, particularly the martyrs. Verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. The martyrs have been elevated on thrones. They have been vindicated to rule with Jesus. They followed the path of Jesus and martyrdom through the sacrifice of their own lives. 
But through their sacrifice, they are elevated. They are raised up to thrones to rule with Christ during this millennial period. And here's what's most important about the millennium. Satan is restrained and the saints rule. Satan is restrained and the saints rule. Satan still prowls. Yes, we know this from other places in, in the Bible. He's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Evil, yes, obviously, is still very much at work in the, in the world. But he's bound, we're told, so that he may not deceive the nations anymore. The nations will not be able to join forces against the church. I think this is another way of saying, as Jesus said in the Gospels, the church will prevail and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. This is a new era that's kicking off. After the destruction of Jerusalem, the old era has passed away. Now the millennial age of the church is in force. We live in the millennial age. No matter what age you are, you're a millennial. We're all millennials as Christians. You will forever be a millennial as a follower of Jesus. This is the age in which we're living in. Where the saints, despite appearances, rule and reign with Jesus Christ. And Satan, despite appearances, is restrained. How should we take this thousand years, though? Is it a literal thousand years? Look, sometimes numbers in Scripture are meant to be taken at a face value. But in Revelation, numbers are highly symbolic. A thousand years is a symbolic number. It's 10 cubed. If you wanted to get into all of that, we could. But it means a long time. And it means a time when Satan is restrained and the saints are ruling with the Lord Jesus Christ. So what happens? What happens during the millennium? Here again, we need to get the bigger picture. What does Jesus command the church to do after his resurrection, before his ascension? Probably heard this before, the Great Commission. All authority in heaven, Jesus says, and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, for some of us, we probably heard that a thousand times. And we maybe think we know what that means. Yes, yes, the Great Commission, we're supposed to go out and share our faith and lead people to Christ. And yes, that is absolutely true. But Jesus tells the church to go and disciple the nations. Go out into the world under the authority of Jesus, with the presence of Jesus. Jesus is giving marching orders to the church. This is nothing less than a universal conquest. Jesus imagines and calls for the nations to be made into followers of him, baptized, converted, taught the ways of Jesus, enjoying the benefits of the kingdom and the kingship of Jesus, living under his authority. This is the vision that Jesus gives the church. Sure, it means sharing our faith. It means personal evangelism, all that. But there's even a much bigger picture that's given to us in the Great Commission. This is what the church is supposed to be doing during the millennium. And notice, the mission is through the apostles. It's through baptism. This is a church-centered mission. And it's a universal mission. It's a mission that transcends cultures, crosses every barrier that humans erect imaginable. It goes out and moves through the world. There are all these prophecies and promises 
in Isaiah, for example, that are imagining when the Messiah finally comes, peace and shalom will work its way out into the world and all will come under his rule and reign. So Isaiah 2, for example, it shall come to pass that in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and be lifted up above the hills and the nations will flow to it. He shall judge between the nations. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn um, war anymore. Why? Because they have been converted to the Messiah's rule. This obviously hasn't happened yet. The Lord Jesus Christ came to earth as Messiah, the promised one, to inaugurate and begin this kingdom. And his work didn't end at the ascension. It actually was just getting started because his work continues through the church, through the power of the Spirit. Revelation 19, 11 through 16, I think, gives us some insight into this mission. This is the section where Jesus goes out on his war horse, on this charger, into the world, and he brings judgment on the great monster, on the, the beast and the false prophet. But it's interesting how this mission is described. Again, we can get weirded out by all of the symbolism and language, but one thing we should know, that every time we come across symbols in Revelation, they're connected to other parts of Scripture. They're connected in places like Daniel and places like Isaiah. So this is, in many ways, a very Old Testament-type book that we have here in Revelation. So, Revelation 19, 11 through 16, we see how the Lord, in one of his comings, um, uh, we see how he comes. Uh, 19, uh, 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 11, the one sitting on the horse is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. We've seen... This rider on the horse back in Revelation chapter 6, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's charging out of heaven to make war. He's wearing many crowns. He's clothed in a white robe, but it's been dipped with blood. And here in context, I think we should think this is the blood of the saints. This is the blood of the martyrs. He is wearing the blood of the martyrs on his robe. And the saints that are following him are in perfect white linens, clothed in perfect righteousness. The lamb, though, is clothed in their bloody garments. But here he is, riding out into, a, into the world to make war. We might be a bit offended by that. Wait a minute. What about Jesus, meek and mild? What about the sweet baby Jesus? We like the sweet baby Jesus. But Jesus is coming here fully armed. He has lots of weapons. He's on a war horse. He has an army of saints behind him. From his mouth comes a sharp sword to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Jesus is prosecuting a war against the nations. But this is not like any war we've ever seen before. This isn't like any war the world's ever seen before. Because his weapons are quite different. His weapons are his word. His weapons are wine. His weapons 
or the witness of the saints. This is a liturgical war. He's the word of God. That's what we're told here. Yes, it's a sword, but it's a sword coming from his, his mouth. He will strike the nations with a sharp word of his mouth. Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, wielding this sword. Hebrews 4 tells us, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word can come and strike us down. It can kill us, as it were, but only to raise us up again to new life, to convert us. The same word that cuts us down, these are the words of life. Jesus is the word of life. But he cuts us down, calling us to repentance. He cuts the nations down, calling them to repentance. But they are raised up under his good rule, under his rod. This is connected to our Psalter lesson from Psalm 2. This vision that the Messiah will be the ruler of the nations. But there's another weapon, an interesting weapon here. We've seen this actually before in Revelation. The winepress. We've already seen that the winepress has produced the blood of the martyrs. The Lord's winepress produces wine, which carries out his justice. It's no accident that he uses a winepress in his mission. He's not just Lord of the word. He's Lord of the wine. This is how he brings his nations into his kingdom. So what are we, the church, supposed to be doing during this millennial reign of Jesus Christ? The church is to be engaged in a manner of warfare. But never, never with the weapons of the world. And this is key. Never with tanks, guns, and missiles. The hymn, Lead on, O King Eternal, captures it. Not with swords now clashing. But we have something far more powerful. We have the word of Jesus Christ. We have the wine of Jesus Christ. We have the witness of the martyrs who laid down their life in testimony to Jesus Christ. We are called to a liturgical warfare. Our warfare is the worship of the church throughout the ages. And that's what we do every Sunday with Christians around the globe. This might seem like a pleasant time together, and I hope it is for you. But we have to remember, when we come together, this isn't just to meet some felt need. We're not coming here to be entertained. We're not coming here to have our preferences met. We're not coming here so that we can feel better about ourselves. Now, if all those things work out for you, great. <laughs> we are coming here as the saints of God, as the army of Jesus Christ, to proclaim what is true in the world, to receive his word, to be trained in righteousness so that we can wield his word out in the world, to be strengthened by the blood of the wine of his blood. This is how the world changes. And it starts right here every week. This is the sort of warfare we're called to. So that we can go down into the world and not fight with the weapons of the world. But our fight is actually laying down our lives in service to the world. This is the counterintuitive, world-changing warfare the Lord Jesus Christ calls us to. And he is the one who modeled it. Because how did he win his war? And how is he winning his war? Not by fighting with the weapons of the world but by laying down his life, shedding his blood. And the martyrs are elevated. The martyrs in Revelation receive their crown because they have followed Jesus in this also. And look where they are now. They're ruling at the right hand of the Father. And we are called to follow in their way. 
And we do it by following our leader who bears the sword of his word and teaches us how to use it. And we do it by being strengthened by his blood, the wine that we receive in Holy Communion. So a couple of implications to close us out about how we live during the church's millennial reign. A couple of things. We live, hopefully, because we're playing the long game. We're playing the long game. Is Christianity growing or dying? It really depends on your perspective. It depends on where you are. Um, you can watch a fantastic video on YouTube. I think it was put out by Business Insider, so not a Christian video. But it shows the spread of Christianity from 30 A.D. And it's quite remarkable what happens. So you see this little kind of red area in the Middle East. And the time starts ticking away and it starts to spread. There's some setbacks around six, 700, but it starts spreading even more. It's interesting when there's a setback, it starts to spread even more after the setback. And it's gradually, like leaven working through bread, growing. And what's very interesting is the last 200 years to see the explosive growth of Christianity. Perhaps one of the most explosive periods of growth of Christianity ever. We're living in that moment. Now, in our particular context in the West, it may not seem like that. It may seem like that we're living in this kind of narrative of decline. Things are increasing secularization and all. It is true. But that's not the perspective from our brothers and sisters in the global South. Places like Uganda, where Larry serves. Places like Southeast Asia, where the church is in many ways underground, but thriving, growing. Places like South America. The gates of hell will not overcome the church. Satan is restrained. There is still evil out there in the world. There is still our own rebellion that we have to contend with. But we need to play the long game and be hopeful and pray fervently that his kingdom will come, his will will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. We still, who knows, we still may be in the early church. We think of the early church as like, you know, maybe up to about 500 A.D., Perhaps we are still in the earliest part of the church's history. Who knows? Maybe there are tens of thousands of years left. We need to have an epic sense of time as Christians. This doesn't just help us think about the mission of the church and the church's maturation amidst all of its setbacks. This sort of time perspective helps us think about our own lives as Christians. Our own growth and holiness. With all of our setbacks and our call to mature, we need to be patient with the Lord's work in our own lives as well, even as we're patient with the Lord working out his kingdom into the world. Secondly, we need to live courageously. Courageously. Fighting with Christ's weapons. We don't have to feel like we're forever on the defensive. If we're living with this epic sense of time, if we know how the war has already been won, we need to live courageously, confidently, fighting with the weapons Christ has given us. Again, the church should always avoid taking up the weapons of the world, both the literal weapons of the world and the figurative weapons of the world. We have a very different way of engaging. We've been given the word. So we need to learn. We need to immerse ourselves again and again in the word of God. It's living and active. It's a double-edged sword. It needs to work on us first before we use it to work on others. 
We have to be committed to being people of the word because we follow the one who is the word. And before we try to teach it and bring others into submission to it, we need to be sure that we're practicing obedience and submission to it ourselves. We've been given water, so we need to baptize. Now, this is entrusted to the church as a whole. Jesus says, go out and baptize, church. We need to pray that in work, in labor, in evangelism, that people would be brought into the church so that they could be baptized by the church and be given new life through baptism and faith. We've been given bread. We've been given wine. So we give thanks, as Jesus told us to, and we share the meal he gave us in thanksgiving. And having participated in this meal week after week after week, the once-for-all sacrifice of the martyr, Jesus Christ, we are sent out into the world to be martyrs. You may not have to literally lay down your life, but we are called to be a martyr. A martyr is a witness. And that prayer we pray at the end of communion every week, having received the blood of the martyr, we are sent out, we pray that we would be sent out to be faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. When you pray that, don't just pray it because that's what we pray. Pray it in a sense and with the hope and the attitude that this is indeed what I've been called to do, to be a martyr, to be a witness for Jesus. And that you have been given what you need through the word and sacraments to do that faithfully. The world has changed. The nations are converted through word, through wine, and through witness. May God help our parish, our mission, to be faithful participants in this millennial mission of the church, living hopefully, playing the long game, and living courageously, fighting with the weapons Christ has given us. Let's pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, the faithful and true martyr, you exercise your righteous rule even now over all nations with your word, winepress, and through your faithful witnesses. Let your rule be further known on earth as it is in heaven and grant your church courage to follow you in your triumphant reign, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit reigns forevermore. Amen.